Hey, Abe. Good Monday evening to you. It's a pretty good Monday, I'd say. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's warm in uh, Chicago. It's probably warm in Louisville, and I'm sure it's warm in uh, Texas, where our guest is at right now. So, at least I assume <laughs> he's in Texas. But uh, we got uh, we got Jeff Brown on the show. Jeff Brown, Jeff Brown. I never know how to say it. I've heard it both ways, but uh, it's third time, yeah. fourth time. <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking about that. At least third time. Yeah, I think so. It's uh, it's always a pleasure yeah. to to be with you guys. And yeah, it's uh, technically it's Jeff Brown, like the color, but uh, mm-hmm. it's German. It's German, so whatever. I'm just happy to be I think, here. I think four years ago, or whenever you were on the first time, we were sitting in the uh, in the I think it was the JW Marriott or whatever in Indianapolis. And uh, yep. I think we had this, how do you say your last name? Cause I've heard it before this conversation <laughs> then. So we could do that twice. Oh, that's so, okay. No problem. Um, no problem. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember that. That was, that was fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah. I think we went for like two hours and we're like, we should probably, I think the show's over. We should probably stop recording something. <laughs> so, yep. Yep. Um, if I well, remember right, we were talking about, uh, uh, setting up Indy cars to be as little drag as possible while still being drivable by a race car driver, which was pretty fun conversation. That was definitely yeah. the end of one of the shows for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, well, a, a so, lot's happened since then. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's 2023. We are, uh, we're in a, a whole new year. What, uh, what's going on in, in Jeff Brown race car world right now? Ah, uh, quite a bit. Um, I guess the big news for me and <clears throat> for a lot of people is after being with Core Autosport for uh, seven years, I think, six, seven years, the Core Autosport closed down at the end of the year. <clears throat> and um, and it was a good run and everything. But um, so after winning the LMP3 championship last year, um, John Bennett decided to close the team down. We can get into more of that if people are interested and um, on why and everything. But so core closed down and um, I'm going to be doing some consulting work for one of the drivers that drove with us at core, George Kurtz, who's going to be running okay. LMP2 this year in the um, endurance championship in IMSA. So I'm going to be doing some consulting work with uh, him and the team uh, starting here in about, uh, what, 10 days now at the Roar. That's Man, coming up fast. It, uh, right back into it. <laughs> right, right. No, no. Uh, my unemployment lasted, uh, uh, I don't know, a few hours. But uh, yeah. it, was, it was nice that uh, George and I had worked together. And George is the guy that drives with my son, Colin, in the SRO um, GT3 series. So I've yep. known George for a long time. And, and when I became available, he's like, Hey, can you come and lend a hand? And I was like, sure. Oh, it was fun to go racing with friends. Well, I'm sure this it seems uh, like... cycle of like, uh, you know, teams starting up and closing down kind of, uh, looking for your next gig is uh, it's kind of evergreen in this line of work, right? Where yeah, this is just say, how it things seems go. Like that, that's sort of part of the job is what's the next job. But... Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, there's, there's been a lot of times in my, you know, I've been, I've made my living and, you know, raised two kids for, for however many years um, as a consulting race engineer. And there were a lot of times early on where it was like Thanksgiving and I didn't have a job and Christmas, uh oh, and now it's New Year's or am I going to get a job? And and so it's, and that's just, 
what uh, consulting race engineer goes through, you know, it's, and a lot of uh, mechanics. There's a lot of fly-in guys nowadays that, um, yeah. you know, they don't need to be full-time in the shop, but they, they need it on race weekends and, and they make their living flying in, you know, a lot of times two different series, like a lot of good mechanics will uh, be a fly-in for IMSA WeatherTech series and the SRO series or Ferrari Challenge and IMSA, and they just make their living yeah. doing that. So, yeah, teams come and go. It's the thing that's most surprising about CORE and a lot of teams is how long they actually lasted. I mean, CORE has been around for almost 11 years, I think, and yeah. most race teams don't last that long. So it was a... It was a heck of a run and and a lot of fun with a lot of success and um but it's you know it's just the way it goes with uh with race teams sponsors change people's interests change other factors come involved businesses change and and you're always looking for that next that that next deal yeah what was the longest run you ever had with a single team Wow, this one would be pretty close. I was with Level 5 for five years. I was with mm -hmm. probably Team Scandia was the longest. And if people might remember Team Scandia back from the Ferrari 333 days and, and you know. Oh, those, those cars are so cool. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, yeah. I ran at Team Scandia. I was technical director there from 92 to 2000 probably i think so okay. that was a pretty that was a pretty long one we ran you know we ran champ car which is like the current indy car we ran irl we ran <clears throat> it was um it was imsa back then the forerunner of alms so it was the imsa series we ran top fuel drag racing and um the arca series all in out of one shop in Indianapolis. That's wild. That yeah. is, that doesn't even seem possible, but that's so cool. No, it's wow. a, a one year we qualified seven cars for the Indy 500, which I think is still a record. And <clears throat> at the same time, we're running, running champ car. Um, yeah, I remember that year, I think I went to 47 events. I mean, I would, some weekends I would do an IndyCar race and a top fuel race. How is that even weekend. possible? Yeah. Um, airplanes and scheduling, I guess. It was a. Uh, Holy cow. Yeah. Were, yeah like, just, were you taking, were you taking flights in the middle of the weekend to get to the other side of the country or like how, how crazy did it get? Yeah. Well, Andy Evans had his private jet. And so a lot of times it was a day to make sure that, you know, and I was technical director, so there was engineers in charge of each thing. And what mm -hmm. we were trying to do really was take the the technology from each kind of different aspect of racing and blend yeah. it together. Like the, the top fuel guys were really good at some things that the IndyCar guys weren't. The IndyCar guys, mm -hmm. we had a lot of sensors and technology and data acquisition that the top fuel guys weren't utilizing that really helped their program. Um, yeah. You know, the sports car guys were great on mileage of parts and lifing and endurance, um, you know, reliability, which the IndyCar guys learned some things from. So my job is kind of blend all that together. So I would, you know, go in and check with the different race series and race teams um 
on the weekends and it was fun. It was fun, but it was, yeah, it was busy. And, uh, uh, so I think that might be them and core. Uh, I was with Crone racing for five years, five or six years. Um, had some good long runs. I'm very fortunate to have teams where we could establish procedures and systems and things yeah. like that and, and continue to roll them over year after year. Love a good procedure. Yes, for sure. <laughs> for yeah. sure. Abe's a big fan of processes and procedures. You, you have what it takes to be uh, good in the race engineering department because that's what we spend a lot of time on, you know, is is um, trying to get a procedure down, refine it, and then make it so that there's no areas for error or interpretation. Right. It just gets done the same way each time. It, it uh, I was listening uh, I was listening back to years ago you did the the probably one of the best automotive podcasts I've ever heard and that was uh, the Dinner with Racers show about the Level Five car <laughs> the Level Five Pro right. programs and yep. I was listening back to you talk about how you had uh, you guys had practiced basically the pre the pre grid closing time frame of like getting the tires off the tire warmers over the fence because they weren't allowed in the grid at road America right. uh, yep. because of SECA rules and getting them on and then getting the crew back over the, over the fence or around the fence before, I don't know, it was like a one or the three minute mark. And uh, yep. like, that's, that's, that's a process and procedure that just seems a little wild and club racing, but uh, yeah, <laughs> even to go that extent, like when you're a real team um, and yeah. then uh, yeah, the, the only uncontrolled variable that there would be like who's actually watching the clock and how close are they watching it you know right but, right uh, exactly yeah, I mean, from, those from, are the kind of things. from like the steward perspective <laughs> right yeah it was it, those are the kind of things that um i don't know you don't i've always thought i guess i'll go back my dad used to tell me when i was you know when we were racing go-karts he used to mm-hmm. say do the do the free things right and, you know, a procedure, how you're going to do something or practicing something, you don't really have to have a big budget for that. You know, anybody, nope, can, nope. anybody can benefit from those procedures. And you can beat some guys who have bigger budgets than you because you do right. those free things correct and do them well and do them better than the next guy. <laughs> Certainly so, at a yeah. much lower level, but we've seen this even with um, kind of the rollout of our endurance series within Gridlife. Uh, there were teams at our first event that it was clear practiced their driver changes and there oh, were teams yeah. that yeah. certainly did not. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Some, some struggle a lot, you know, and that's like anything that involves a crew or like downtime, you want to minimize that stuff and minimize errors and also maximize safety by minimizing errors. So then that stuff right. really like, it's largely free practicing and perfecting that stuff. And also just exactly. knowing what you're going to need to do in that regard. So, yep. And when yeah. you practice it, then you find the holes in it and you find, Oh, I need right. this tool or I should set this tool over here. You know, mm-hmm. coming full circle, uh, so you talk about, you know, your endurance series. Those guys <clears throat> certainly work hard at it and everything else. They don't have the budgets like the current IMSA GTP teams do. But we're going to see, I think, this year at Daytona, which teams have their procedures down in GTP. Because I think you probably see a lot of, a lot of those GTP cars in the garage making 
repairs because the cars are so new and, and unproven at this stage. And it's going to mm-hmm. come down to which team has those procedures down the best. You know, I think you'll see garages set up with tools and specific people that maybe don't even go to the pit lane that just live in the garage the whole race and wait for the car to come there and jump into their procedures that they've practiced. I mean, we we did that at core. We had two or three people that just sat in the garage and they were waiting in case the car came to the garage and they started on the process to do whatever it was, change the exhaust or replace the floor or whatever problem. It's a lot like being a doctor in like a, uh, like a triage emergency room type situation where like something's going to happen and I'm just sitting here waiting until that moment. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So how, how many years? Uh, how many years have you actually gone to the twenty four? Being as that's like the the biggest road race in in our continent, pretty much aside from like F one stuff. Um, how many times have you done that event? Uh, this year will be my thirty fourth Rolex twenty four. Holy cow! That's awesome. Yeah, done, that is awesome. I've done thirty thirty three of them, and so. Yeah, so I, I I I know all sorts of ways to lose it. I'm really good at that. I've, I've you I've, have I've won, won it, it though. You have won. It. <laughs> I, I've I've won it twice. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so so we'll you know thirty thirty one ways. Uh, I think those thirty one losses helped me figure out you know how to maybe win it. Uh, I know I'm good at inventing a new way to lose it each year. So. <laughs> But it's, uh, yeah, that, you know, learn a lot. That's, and have, not, have that's some... not the skill you want to hone, but uh, everybody kind of accidentally <laughs> hones that skill. <laughs> yep, 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 yeah. Yep. It's, uh, yeah, so 34 years. It's, um, and I'm just, I'm, I think I'm as excited about this one as I was about the, the first one. It's always something new and a different challenge. So what can you tell us about the, you know, the program for this year? Like uh, what class... Um, what are your, your, what are you targeting? Um, what do you think could go wrong? What are you preparing for? Yeah. So, uh, we're in the LMP two class, which, um, is the class right below GTP, which is the top class now with all the hybrid cars and stuff like that. So we're in, we're, we're, the team is CrowdStrike racing by APR and APR is mm-hmm. Algarve pro racing. And that's a team from Europe that uh, has quite a bit of experience in LMP, uh, LMP2 racing. In fact, they won the Pro-Am class at Le Mans last year in LMP2. So oh, wow. yeah. they're coming over, <clears throat> and George Kurtz, the, the um, CEO of CrowdStrike, who drove with us at CORE in LMP3, last two years um, is basically contracted with Algarve Pro to run his LMP2 program. So it's an Orica like every car in LMP2 is, not because it's required, but because it's clearly the best car. So to really have a chance, you need need an Orica. So Orica is the chassis? Is that the engine supplier also? Yeah. Right. So Orica is the chassis, and then the engine is, uh, is a spec engine built by Gibson. Um, it's a, it's a V8, uh, naturally aspirated racing engine and every car must have that engine and they're all spec and you were allowed one of four different chassis manufacturers, but since 
as the years progressed, it became clear that the Orica was the best chassis. So really, in order to win, you have to have an Orica. So the class kind of by default has become an Orica Gibson spec, spec. class. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so, spec, so it's down to your down to your prep, basically, right? So does exactly. that class uh, still get like a, a balance of performance applied to it for different teams and drivers and setups and whatever? Because you'd imagine um, that the performance advantage that a tr- uh, that a team would uh, gain would be just because they were better at setup and better at driving. Exactly. So the good thing about LMP2 is there's no balance of performance within the class. So they're not going to balance a, you know, an experienced team and give an inexperienced team more horsepower. They're, they're all have the same equipment. So right. you're, they are going to do some balancing or performance limiting of the LMP2 class because you have to have to make the racing good with five classes. Now, you know, you have GTP, which are the hybrid super factory cars. You have LMP2, which is a spec prototype. You have LMP3, a slightly slower spec prototype. And then GTD Pro, which are GT3 cars with pro drivers, and GTD, which are GT3 cars with amateur drivers, or at least one amateur Mm -hmm. driver. So to make all of those classes race well together, they have to have the performance. In other words, you wouldn't want the LMP2 cars embroiled in the GTP race, or you wouldn't want the LMP2 cars slow at a pace where they would be embroiled in the LMP3 race. So you're, you're kind of segmenting entire classes to create separation. Exactly. And they, exactly what you said, separation IMSA, IMSA is uses this fancy stratification class stratification. So you want the GTP cars to run what they run. You want the P2 cars to run, let's say, three seconds slower at Daytona. The P3 cars to be three seconds slower than them, and the GT3s mm-hmm. to be three seconds slower than them. And and then you can pass and you can, you know, you have good racing where you wouldn't want to prototypes of different classes in a huge battle because they, they have to take risks against somebody that they aren't really racing against. So, right. So the P2 yeah, nobody really follows really the, the overall who fastest to slowest. They follow the overall and then they follow class wins. And exactly. Uh, I mean, as far as spectators go, so that makes a lot of sense. Yep. That's a tough, yep. that seems like a tough race to be in charge of. I would not want to be, uh, I would not want to be the one that makes the rules for that. <laughs> I don't want to make, be the one that makes the rules for our series. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, that, it's really that, tough. That IMSA has a, a, a tough job there, and, <clears throat> you know, you can't please anybody. There's 61 cars in this year's 24 Hours of Daytona, and 61 people won't be happy, but it's they've yeah. done a really good job. And, and this year it's even more difficult <clears throat> because of the GTP cars are really an unknown. They've never done a race. They're all right. brand new. And so they have to, you know, they have to decide – they want them fast enough. You certainly IMSA doesn't want an LMP two car to win overall against the factory, uh, you know, GTP cars. We, yeah, I'm we a little rusty Coral. on my endurance racing trivia, but didn't the, the Porsche RS spider do that once or twice in Europe? Um, 
it could have as a P2 car. More recently, what I know for sure is we at CORE took an LMP2 car in 2018 and won two races overall against all the factories. That's so crazy. Right. Yeah, so we had we had a bronze driver, John Bennett, admittedly a very, very good bronze driver. And we had my son, Colin, and we beat in two races flat out uh, overall. You know, we beat... Penske and Ganassi and the factory, um, you know, the factory Nissans and the factory Cadillacs and all of those guys. We beat them straight out yeah. in a straight out fight. The factories didn't really that like is, that very much. That has got to be the coolest feeling. <laughs> it was pretty cool. It was, it, yeah. but I'm not going to lie. That was, that was pretty good. A little team from Rock Hill, you know, the 10 of us. And we, we were able to do that. Um, and, and that's when, LMP2 was just, it was just called prototype and you could right. run the DPI cars or you could run a, basically a spec Orica LMP2 car. And mm -hmm. that's what we did. And, you know, we did pretty well against them. And, and they, the very next year they said, yeah, no, we're not doing that again. LMP2 is going to be in its own class. And then they started yeah. adding weight and restrictors and things like that to slow them down. Yeah. How are those, uh, how are those LMP2 cars? We talked about this a bunch of years ago, but how are they to live with as far as maintenance and how long do the engines go? And uh, like, what is that like as a team? Like, what do you have to do week to week? How long do you get out of the engine and all that stuff? Yeah, the LMP2 car, like the LMP3, um, are fantastic. It's a really good class. The, uh, the Orica chassis is probably... The Orica LMP2 chassis is probably one of the best race cars I've ever had the pleasure to engineer. It, it does all the things you want it to do. It does it all correctly. Very reliable. Um, you know, it, it doesn't have any tricks in the setup where you have to, like, trick it with some kind of setup right. to get it to handle right. It, it does what you expect. The That Gibson engine, uh, if I remember right, they're good for... It may have they may have extended them a little bit now, but back when I was doing them and when I ran it in eighteen, I think they were good for thirty hours. I think now the revs have been reduced to help this stratification. So hmm. I think you can even get more life out of them now. And then That's you just a send lot it back. of wide open throttle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with an yeah. you know with a engine that's that's revving really high and making 550 horsepower. So does that so, mean for like um, a big race, like the, the 24, uh, a car would come to that event and start uh, in the practice or whatever the, the first session of the weekend would be with a brand new engine. And then it, uh, it cycles out at the end or there, there's no change that has to happen during the weekend as a consequence, right? No, not, not anymore. You may see some teams run the roar the weekend before with a quote practice engine. And then on that Monday, Tuesday, after the roar, before the race week starts change and put a fresh engine in, and then you'll run a little bit of practice on Thursday uh, of race week, you know, just to make sure everything's, you know, working well and then go right into the race. And, and then you might get, yeah, you know, looking, like I'm looking a it, up and it looks like there, there's a lot more Gibson V8s than I thought there were actually. Yeah. There's like yes. five of them right now that they're offering, which is very cool. 
Yeah. Yep. So yeah, that's a cool they, they they sound really good too. When, made in the oh, UK yeah. for for those listening. When the manufacturer specs that for thirty or thirty five, whatever the number is in terms of runtime hours, um, mm-hmm. if you go beyond that service life, uh, are your primary modes of failure just diminished power, or are you looking at other kinds of failure that you have to take into account? It, it, it depends. Um, really, they, you know, they want to make it. Um, they don't want one of the engines to blow up, and it looks it just looks bad. Yeah, for sure. And 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 they don't really. I would say they don't. It's rare that you see one of those engines or mm-hmm. one of the LMP3 engines, which are also a spec engine, which happen to be made. The LMP3 engines are made by Orica which is confusing because they're a chassis manufacturer also, but they do build engines. So they build LMP3 engines, Orica does. And the Orica P3 and the Gibson P2 engines, they, it's really a power, you know, a power issue. You just, the valve seats start to go, the rings start to go, yeah. and you lose power. It, it's not like- It's not advantageous breaks. to run it longer, um, but right. maybe you're not, uh, you're not picking parts up off the track if you end up, by some scenario running 31 hours. No, 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 no. And, and, and they'll, they'll work with you. And that's kind of your decision. If you want to run a little bit longer, you can do that. They'll just, you know, you just know that you won't be at optimum performance. Gotcha. So, um, yeah. And these things are, they're living at like 8,500 RPMs for peak power too. So that's like a lot, oh, yeah. that's a lot of RPMs for that many hours. Oh yeah. 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 And then, they're just it's so that's LMP two. Um, we run on a Michelin tire. Everybody has to run on the same tire. Um, so it's a really cool class, and and, and LMP three applies the same way, where you you know we just talked about procedures and processes. That's what kind of wins you these races because everybody has the same engine, same car, same chassis, same tires, and. Yeah. You can't design a new part for it because they're all homologated, which means when Orica produced the chassis, the FIA came to their factory in France and they took hundreds of pictures and dimensions and Orica had to give them drawings of every part, every wing, every bodywork part, every suspension part, every exactly where the suspension connects, all of that. And there's this big document, about a 140-page document, which is the homologation document. And that's, that's so with crazy. the car. <clears throat> yep. And IMSA yeah. has, a, has a book for that in the trailer. Right. And when you win the Daytona, 24 hours of Daytona, your car goes into the IMSA tech. And, you know, their inspectors are very good. They, they know the car. And if they see anything that's like, eh, hmm, that seems different. They whip that book mm-hmm. out to that page and they hold the picture up to your car. And if it doesn't look exactly like it's supposed to, you're thrown out. So yeah. you can't, you know, yeah. you can't make a new wing or you can't put a new splitter on there or add a little tab or a little flap or a little, you can't do any of that. You can adjust camber, caster, toe, shock settings, wing angles, uh, ride heights. And that's about it. I want to know more, crazy are more oh, about the IMSA tech guys. Those guys seem, they seem like my kind of people. <laughs> um, okay. So the 
IMSA has been smart about it. <clears throat> um, one of the main tech guys, the guy who who watches the cars come through the actual tech. And if anybody gets to go to Daytona, as a sidelight, I would recommend. IMSA has a tech. It's a tent. It's kind of like a building. And if you've seen NASCAR mm -hmm. cars go through tech, it's like there's a plate they pick it up on. They measure. They weigh it. They measure it. They look at it. They inspect it. IMSA kind of has that tent open to the fans who can get in the garage area and you can watch the cars go through tech and see what they're inspecting and all that. It's a pretty cool process. So the guy that's in charge of that is a guy by the name of Eric Haverson, who used to be a crew chief on the core LMP or a GTLM Porsches. Oh, cool. And so he spent his whole life trying to beat the IMSA tech officials. And when core shut the LMP, uh, GTLM program down, IMSA hired him. So makes you know, sense. What, <laughs> what better guy to get than a guy to win? Yeah. yeah, right, right. The old chicken in the hen house kind of thing. So yeah, I think NASCAR um, has done that kind of stuff forever. You know, so. Gary Nelson was hired yeah. by NASCAR because he had spent his life doing that same thing. So, mm -hmm. um, so anyway, Eric he he looks at all of that stuff and then. And he has a team of guys that inspect the cars and you'll see the cars go through there after qualifying, after the race, and then the teams are allowed to go through inspection at their own, um, when they want to go through, they can schedule a time to go through just to check to make sure that they're, that everything's okay, that they're, right. you know, all the measurements are correct. Um, so the team can go through that. And really that's kind of the tip of the iceberg of the, of the IMSA technical team because there's Matt Kurdock is in charge of this is the worst job in all of racing, in my opinion. And I've told Matt this, uh, he's in charge of this BOP for the GT cars, which now they are balanced performance. You're balancing a Lexus to a Ferrari to a yeah. Porsche, you know, that's really hard. So he's in charge of that. And then now the GTP cars, which are quite a bit different. You know, you have the electric hybrid systems, which are all spec in each car. So everybody has the same batteries and the same electric motors, but their mm -hmm. internal combustion engines are completely different. You have normally aspirated big V8 Cadillacs and you have little V6 turbocharged Acuras and everything in between. You know, right. They have to balance those cars out to be to be equal. And so there's a whole team of IMSA tech officials that are using very sophisticated lap time simulations and on-track data monitoring and real-time telemetry that is sent right back to IMSA, directly to IMSA, so they can monitor the performance. They have sensors on the rear axles that are measuring torque, live torque output. So oh, wow. they don't, yeah, they don't really care what the horsepower is. They can see the actual torque being put to the wheels. Interesting. Hmm. And, and so, so all of that's real time. And, and so the, the tech end of it, if you're a tech guy, a technical inspection guy and a rules guy, who IMSA is, is the place to be. It's, it's, it's a hard job and there's a lot of people doing a lot of pretty crazy so stuff there. So the way you described it though, makes it seem like, um, 
the the need for personnel and the like the demand on any one weekend for staffing is like really high. Are all those people, is, is that all they do professionally is like, they are the, you know, the steward for IMSA for XYZ system or whatever. Yep. I mean, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of what we call weekend guys or, and girls for IMSA that fly in, but they are generally, um, you know, like pit lane officials. You might need, 20 pit lane officials to cover pit lane. Sure. So a lot of those people are fly-in people, yep. but these these people doing the balance of performance and the simulations and the the they're all full-time. Um, Eric Haverson, the ex-core guy who I talked about, so he's in charge of the actual physical inspection of the cars, the tech. He probably has, uh, I'm guessing right now, three or four other people that work full-time with him. And then on race weekends, he might have another... 10 or so that come in to help run the lifts and that's uh, wild. the measuring tools and do all of that. Well, yeah. it, to me, what's crazy about that is if, if those folks are full time, um, is IMSA as an organization, like keeping them busy in the winter and off season such that like their, their professional employment is just continuous. Yes. Oh yes. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Because there's so much to do. Uh, 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 one thing I didn't, you know, another aspect of that is part of that balance of performance, it, it, it balancing the GT cars amongst themselves and the GT and the GTP cars among themselves is IMSA has to have good data because if they just say, okay, go out on the track, the teams will try to sandbag, disguise, sandbag. Yep. yeah, their performance, right? Because they don't want to get extra weight added because they're too fast or whatever. So IMSA mm -hmm. is constantly looking at ways to check them. Game the and system, make sure, yeah. Yeah. Check, yeah. Prevent the gaming, yeah. Prevent the gaming. So one of the things they do, and, you know, you asked about over the winter, um, every GTP car and every GTD car, as a manufacturer, not every team, but, you know, a Porsche had to go to the wind tunnel in – uh, North Carolina, the full-scale wind tunnel, and run for a day with IMSA officials standing there so they could measure the drag and the downforce and change the ride height and, and find yeah. the aerodynamic parameters of that car. Then a Ferrari had to come, and then a Lamborghini had to come. And so these IMSA officials are spending all winter doing aerodynamic testing on every IMSA car. And then they, they have to, to know come everything to the, they can about it. Yeah. Exactly. And then NASCAR, as I think a lot of people know, NASCAR owns IMSA. NASCAR has their tech center in Charlotte, and they will take engines from these cars and run them on the NASCAR slash IMSA dyno and get actual performance numbers from those engines. Interesting. And, right. and so there's a, it's a full-time 365 day a year job for those for those IMSA guys so Jeff in my um, professional life I am an R&D manager for uh, uh, a chemical company here in Kentucky and as you talked about the um, kind of the race day IMSA officials looking at um, data that's being sent to the organization from each of the teams mm -hmm. I can imagine that this is a really 
uh, it's a personnel heavy process for sure, but a lot of it sounds like it has the potential to just be very manual. Um, like our, our, our data scientists being used to like, um, do some, uh, uh, real time process analytics that will like flag certain situations on, uh, I don't know the, the channel that reports torque or whatever, or is it, yep. is it yep. often just someone that's just looking at a spreadsheet? So that's a great question. And, and it's kind of evolving. Um, three or four years ago, it was collecting data from the cars looking at the performance, going back after a race weekend and using that, maybe a little bit of simulation to see if it makes sense. But then looking at that data, actually downloading the data from each car after the race, going back, processing Ah. it all, and then deciding, oh, okay, that car has too much power. We're going to give it a smaller restrictor. In in chemistry, that would be like... um you know, batch to batch analysis, if you were making a material. Um, right. But it might yep. be different than, well, I have, I have a process analyzer in my process in real time and I've programmed uh, alarms such that if X, Y, Z happens, I know about it and I don't have to, I don't have to be searching for the data. The, the system just tells me. That is, and, and that's where we've kind of evolved to this year. Um, you know, uh, I thought of a one one good thing. It's not a tech from the, the performance of the car standpoint, but one way that works in IMSA is there's there's a pit lane speed limit that we have to adhere to from the line mm-hmm. when you come in the pits to the line when you leave the pits. You can't exceed sixty kilometers per hour, and if you do, you get a drive-through penalty. Well, the pit lane is has a bunch of buried timelines, just like the start finish line on any racetrack or, or sector times. It's yep. a buried wire under the track, basically. And there's maybe, I don't know, at Daytona, eight or 10 of them down pit lane. And it just measures the time between those lines and does the math and calculates whether you've exceeded 60K. There's no human intervention. There's a screen that a human is looking at. And if one of those boxes turns red, it says car 52 was three kilometers over and they get a drive through penalty. So they're looking at that, that kind of, uh, you know, there's no manual checking of that. On the technical side, this year with the GTP cars, and, and I'm not involved in a GTP car, so I'll, I'll give you the kind of the basics that I know here. Um, my son Colin is driving the Michael Shank GTP uh, factory Acura this year. And so mm-hmm. I've kind of, you know, I'm, I'm interested in it, but um, I, I've kind of looked at the rules and they are, IMSA is actually going to restrict the GTP cars based on their total power because you have the hybrid motor delivering some electric power and you have the internal combustion engine delivering some power. And it's my understanding that if IMSA sees through their torque sensors and other um, data acquisition, real-time telemetry that's coming back to them in pit lane, and they see a team exceeding that, that the team could actually get a drive-through penalty during the race for exceeding the amount of power used 
at some point. I'm sure there's some warnings involved. That's really yeah, cool. That sounds that sounds impossible, but also science fiction, but also very interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's crazy. It, that's and, crazy. And, so and, and if they make the the penalty enough so that a team doesn't want to push that boundary too much, then no penalties yeah. will be given. You know, no, nobody wants to see a penalty after penalty for you know exceeding the horsepower limits that would make the racing bad but right yeah that, that that's the thing that to me seems impossible but i guess if the if the juice isn't worth the squeeze the teams are going to be in line right 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 so it'll it'll keep everybody you know i guess the flip side of it all the fans want to see a fair race they don't want somebody to have 50 more horsepower and then not show it and only use it on the last lap to win the race that they right. feel you would feel cheated so IMSA has done a really good job, I think, and we'll, it's difficult, but with their improved sensors and their improved um, ability to look at all this real time, you could see some, some penalties given um, for exceeding those balance of performance limits uh, during the race. Crazy. I, I know that, that crazy. I know that this is like big business, but I can appreciate from my uh, outside of racing world, building those like software architectures to be able to collect all that data, display all that data, run those analyses, you know, trigger when something happens and flag and do like the, the number of dollars that the organization must have invested in order to be able to have the ability to just collect sensor data and do all those things is right. probably millions upon millions of dollars. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. With some really good, smart partners. I mean, like, like uh, you have Bosch who, you know, is one of the top motorsports electronic um, systems and data acquisition companies. You have Cosworth uh, which owns uh, the data acquisition company, Pi research um, you have MoTeC. All of these companies are involved in uh, collecting the data, managing the data, and you know, even to the point of if if, if you've watched the IMSA race, you'll see simple things like on the side of every car is a number panel with LED lights, and it mm-hmm. indicates what position that car is in, real time. So if you yeah. look at the side of a car, it'll say six. Well, that car is in sixth place. Uh, it gets that information from the, you know, the, the simple timing and scoring transponders, but then that information is fed into the timing and scoring and then sent real-time telemetry from timing and scoring to each car. That's so cool. And, re- and then displayed on the, on, the, on the side of the car for the fans to be able to see. So the investment that IMSS has made in, in – all of that to make it a good fan experience is tremendous. And, and I think it is, you know, it, it's, it's fun to watch. You get five different classes of racing out there at Daytona and most of the IMSA races. And, you know, if, if you're a racing fan and you can't find a car to love or one to hate, um, I, I'd be surprised. Yeah. You're really not watching. If you, if you, that's the best thing I think they do with, with, with mixed class racing is it is, 
compared to many other mixed class racing, which largely is amateur, but like compared to many others, like it actually is easier to digest if you watch 10 minutes of an IMSA race versus 10 minutes of something else. Um, yep. They do do a good yep. job of, of making it, making it uh, something that a, that a layman or a car curious person could digest. If they watch it for more than three minutes, you can kind of figure out who's winning and in what class, which is great. So, right. Right. And pick your, pick your class, whatever, whatever's interesting. Right. And, yep. and I think the great thing about watching those races is, you know, people will be like, Oh man, uh, you know, I like uh, the GTP class, the top class, but those GT cars keep getting in the way. Well, right. watch that's a skill. That's a really, what makes a great sports car driver is somebody that can get through traffic better than the next guy. And so instead right. of watching a procession or instead of having to have DRS zones or push the pass or whatever, you, we got a GT car in the way, you know, and right. okay. So that slows that guy down and gives the other guy a run and the next corner, it works the other way. And, uh, you know, and the GTD, GT guys are battling themselves. So you come up on three GT cars that are battled in this big broiling battle for five laps and now the leader overall leader wants to pass them and those guys don't want to lift for a second because the no, guy they're no. racing might get by them it's i it's a it's a different added skill set for the drivers and, and really fun for the fans I think. as as you kind of talk about running the team and and running an event um right. my personal experience with endurance racing is limited though i've spectated a you know a decent amount what i do know is if you're not in the lead class, there is a tremendous amount of strategy uh, surrounding where the overall lead car is and the position of that lead car relative to your entry affects many decisions that you might make minute by minute. Um, <laughs> exactly. What, what are some things that like are uh, maybe uh, hidden or uh, not obvious for people that are interested in sports car racing that uh, you would only learn about by doing it in this way? Well, another super good question. It, it, and it's funny, I'm sitting here. So today I started, uh, you know, I have a timing and scoring software program that I use um, that it, it's called HH and they, they provide this program at a, you know, a license fee for teams. And it, it gives us a lot of, tools, software tools to be able to analyze the race and the strategy and the performance of the other cars and things like that. And <clears throat> it's it just happened that today I started replaying last year's 24-hour race in real time. So you can put this file into the timing and scoring program, hit go, which is essentially the green flag, and the timing and scoring program is running right now. As I turn around here in my office, I'm eight hours, five minutes and 26 seconds into last year's race. And I'm, it's exactly, exactly what I was seeing last year play out. Yeah. And so we have those tools that give us a chance to analyze those kind of things. Um, and exactly what you said, if you're not in the top class, the normal strategy in a top class is still difficult, but the other classes are, are there's more nuances to it. For instance, if you, let's say you were the leader of LMP2, a second 
tier class and you had just got or, or you had the overall leader right behind you and the yellow came out the safety car would come out right in front of the overall leader and you as the lmp2 leader would get to go all the way around essentially making up three quarters of a lap <clears throat> another the second place car could have been stuck behind the overall leader so now you're almost a lap up on, on the second, place, the second car, place car which is unfair that's just by the chance of where the when the yellow came out so what imsa does is they have what they call a wave around so if the yellow comes out and you are ahead of your class leader in line IMSA will say commence wave around. All of those cars that are ahead of their class leader in line get to pull out and go past the safety car and come around back to the back of the line, effectively neutralizing any of that disadvantage of the multi-class racing. But, that. but only a maximum of one lap, right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So you come around. So that second place guy now gets to pass the, the leader, overall leader, come around, and he pulls in right where he was before, but not almost a lap down. Mm-hmm. And then they do all of that, and then they'll open the pits and allow everybody to pit together and everybody to come back out. So <clears throat> you have to make sure that you know whether you're eligible for that pass around because IMSA doesn't call it on the radio. They don't say, okay, car 12, 18, 36, and 5 go around. They just say, mm-hmm. commence pass around. And if you're asleep and you don't take it, well, you're almost a lap down. You just blew your chance. Or I'm sure that happens, almost, right? Oh, it happens all the time. Yeah, or, I'd imagine, worse yet, yeah. <laughs> or worse yet, you take the pass around and you weren't eligible for it. So you've essentially gained a lap. And then <laughs> when it goes green, you'll hear whatever, car 52, uh, uh, inappropriate pass around, stop plus two minutes. Oh, and you have to, yeah, you have to stop in the penalty box and sit there for a lap, essentially, to, to take that away. So it becomes really busy in these races with those kind of things. And we haven't even talked about what if you're a lap down and what things can you do using the strategy and the pass arounds and all of that to get a lap back. Mm-hmm. And it's IMSA does a great job with their rules to allow you opportunities to get the lap back. You know, some, some of the world endurance races, um, which run the same cars, but they run in Europe, they don't do some of these things. So you'll end up after a six or eight hour race with two of the 20 cars on the lead lap. In IMSA, really? because yeah, yeah, because they just don't have, they don't have pass arounds for full course yellows. They don't have, mm-hmm. you know, they have slow zones, yeah. kind of like Formula One, where instead of putting yellow, yellow out and letting everybody bunch together, they just make everybody mm-hmm. go the same speed, so all the gaps stay the same. Right. So you yep. know, Daytona now, you'll end up after twenty four hours, you'll end up with each class will have. I have five to 10 cars. I bet GTD will have 15 cars on the lead lap with one hour to go after 24 hours of racing. Right. And like when, when you guys won with level five years ago, it was a battle like through the bus stop still, right? Exactly. The last, 
the the last lap, um, we were we were leading, and the, we the the Audi tried to pass us in the kink, and dipped the wheel, went off, came back on, and. Mm-hmm. We got through the bus stop first and ended up winning that race. I mean, I remember the margin of victory was, you know, under a second after 24 hours. And that's pretty common in most classes now. And that was the race where you didn't officially win until, what, five hours later or something? Yeah. Yes. Um, I I always call it, people ask me if I've won the 24 hours of Daytona. I said, well, that year we won the 28 hours of Daytona. Because, yeah, it was like four or five hours later. <laughs> yeah, it was. They disqualified our driver for supposedly uh, avoidable contact, and it turned out he didn't. But there, there was, was no contact. Yeah, yeah, there was literally no contact though. Yeah, right. And he didn't push the guy yeah. off and all of that. And they reviewed, 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 and at the end, Insta decided no. That you know, it's kind of like a NFL thing where the on-field call was overturned by the booth. Uh, right that's kind of what happened with imsa they went oh yeah no that original call was wrong we're going to overturn that and so then we got the win and wasn't that the year that uh that your son colin also won what class was he in then yep he was in lmpc which is kind of like the like the lmp3 class now so he won that race he won that with core that's when i was still at level five and we won with level five, but um, unfortunately, I was embroiled in a um, a uh, IMSA protest rules kind of thing to try to sort all of that out. So I didn't get to go to victory lane with them. But we did in 2018. We won together in LMP2 class at Core. Um, so we did get to celebrate a 24-hour Daytona yeah. win together. That is pretty rad. So I can't imagine, I can't imagine how, especially when you guys won together, like that's gotta be a great feeling. So it was pretty cool. And, and, you know, my dad back in 1987 and 88, my dad entered a car that I had built in the 24 hours of Daytona and his dream was always to win Daytona. And he, we, we tried it two years. We never did. And so to finally get it, you know, kind of for him, he had passed away before that, but to get it for him, um, you know, me and his grandson together was, you know, pretty special from a family standpoint. That's insane. I love that. Um, well, I think we did one show. Do you have some more time? You want to do one more with yeah. us or how do you, yeah. 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 I, I would love to get into like some weird technical questions. We just had like one of the best like backstage IMSA uh, talks that I think I've ever heard, which is great. So mm-hmm. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah take it wherever um, you want. Yeah, if, uh, I'm here. Uh, Abe, you want to do? Uh, you want to do one more? Uh, I do. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I think, think it would should, be easiest uh, we, if I we, hit we stop should. and restarted, but it won't affect the call. Okay. Um, okay. Well, we should probably uh, let let Jeff sign off, and uh, and we should probably thank some sponsors and stuff quick, but. Uh, um. Yeah, we can uh, we can see you at the at the twenty four hour in a few weeks. See at the roar right before that, um, yep. and uh, and yeah, we'll uh, we'll hopefully talk to you again, uh, maybe more often, especially now that we figured out how to do remote calling even better. So that's good. So oh, awesome! I, I yeah, I had a great time. It was uh, it was really 
really fun. And uh, yeah, we're off to Daytona. Come and see us. Uh, it'll be the CrowdStrike uh, 04 uh, LMP2 car. Heck yeah, man. And uh, Abe, you want to do another podcast in a minute? I do. Yep. All right. Awesome. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the pits at a gridlife to say hello. Thank you.